Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Amy Mount and I'm a dual degrees master's candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. I'm in the studio today with Fran Ulmer. Ms Ulmer has served as chair of the US Arctic Research Commission since 2011 and she was a member of the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling, appointed by President Obama. She is a distinguished academic and was Chancellor of the University of Alaska Anchorage from 2007 to 2011. Besides her academic work, Ms Ulmer has had a long political career, serving as Mayor of Juneau, a state representative, and as Lieutenant Governor of Alaska. Ms Ulmer, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So to begin with, you were born and raised in Wisconsin. How, how did you get from there to Alaska? What drew you there? Amy, there's a long version and a short version, and I'll give you the short version. <laughs> After graduating from law school, I took a job in Washington, D.C., and although D.C. is a beautiful city, I really wasn't cut out to be an urban dweller. I had been raised hunting and fishing and hiking and canoeing, and I missed those things, and a good friend of mine from law school had taken a job in Juneau, Alaska, and loved it. So I decided... I would give it a try, and I moved to Juneau. I went to work for the Alaska legislature and fell in love with both the place, the job, the politics, the sense of excitement associated with being in Alaska at a time right before the oil pipeline was built, and there were so many decisions being made, so much change. Uh, it was a good fit, not to mention I could hunt and fish and hike and kayak and ski and do all of the things that I loved doing when I grew up in Wisconsin. So it um, it has been a fabulous experience. I have no regrets about making that somewhat impulsive decision back when I was very young. <laughs> and, and so what was it about politics in particular uh, that, that drew your attention? Well, I had been involved in government, uh, student government, in high school and college. And so I'd always been interested in the process and the policy associated with uh, public sector decision-making. But remember, I'm also a child of the 60s. So for me, the call-out from President Kennedy to actually focus your life on doing something for the greater public good was certainly an important part of what shaped my view of how I would want to spend my life. Uh, my grandfather had been an active conservationist in Wisconsin, involved in many organizations, but primarily involved in making certain that special areas were preserved, the Horicon Wildlife Refuge. And my mother was the first woman elected to the school board in my little town in Wisconsin. So I guess there was both the culture of the time, uh, sort of a family tradition, personal interest based on experience I had in high school. And as I said before, in Alaska, there were so many things that were rapidly changing that really required the attention of the people who lived there to make decisions. It was a great time to be involved in politics, and it was an important time for people from a variety of different backgrounds and perspectives to actively engage in the decision-making process. 
And today you're chair of the US Arctic Research Commission and you've been doing that for more than two years now. Why do you think we should care about the Arctic? Why, why is it important that the United States has a focus on the Arctic region? Well, let me break down my answer into three parts. First of all, the United States is an Arctic nation because of Alaska, because we have Arctic space. And the other Arctic nations, there are in total eight Arctic nations that are not only jurisdictionally in terms of their geography, but also that are engaged in something called the Arctic Council. And the United States will take over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council in a year and a half. So from sort of a national perspective, we have an obligation as a country to step up to the plate and lead an organization that really tries to focus on this important region. So the second part of my answer is that the Arctic is a very important area because of its unique ecological systems. It's an ice-based system. So there are many species that are there and only there, polar bear, walrus, etc. And so just in terms of understanding a really important region and trying to do what needs to be done to assure the long-term sustainability of that ecosystem, it's incumbent upon the Arctic nations, including the United States, to focus on how best to move forward to preserve those unique, very special, very rare ecosystems and species. And finally, the Arctic is the refrigerator for the planet. And to the extent that the Arctic warms and has an impact on the warming climate and weather throughout the Northern Hemisphere, it's really important to pay attention to how we are all connected, not a region that is far away, out of sight, out of mind, why should we care about it, but understanding how that region and the rate of change it's experiencing actually impacts people who live in Louisiana or in New Jersey or anywhere else in the Northern Hemisphere. So just from the standpoint of understanding the world we live in and paying attention to the changes that are happening, it's important for Americans to become better educated about the Arctic. Hmm. And and the Arctic itself has been inhabited for, for thousands of years by the uh, indigenous people who still live there, who have a strong connection with the land and sea and have perhaps a different way of, of knowing the area, what is often labelled traditional knowledge as opposed to the kind of scientific knowledge that tends to be privileged in institutions such as Yale. And the Arctic Research Commission's members have included both Alaska Native people and non-natives. I wonder if you could comment on the ways that these different kinds of, of knowledge interact and what are the challenges and opportunities of such an interaction um, and, and what are the implications for that when you're thinking about policy formation and, and leadership? Well, in some ways, um, traditional knowledge or Arctic, what we would think of as native ways of knowing, that's another way in which we describe traditional knowledge, is really experientially being able to communicate patterns of observation through the generations, through storytelling, through uh, practice of skill sets, through hunting, through fishing, and through music and dance. There are a wide variety of ways in which indigenous people communicate the knowledge of actually observation. That observation is incredibly important to Western scientists as well, because as 
we understand it, Western science is really being able to replicate the same information through experiments often or through controlled trials, which also is based on observation. So these things are different, but they're also similar. And for a space like the Arctic, where it is very cold, very dark, very, very difficult and expensive to do research, to have Western scientists be able to tap into the knowledge of local people who have spent their entire lives and generations before them, doing this kind of observational science really helps Western scientists do their work better when they open up lines of communication with indigenous people in the region. They get better information. I'll just give you one example. Uh, for a long, long time, the Inupiat of Alaska maintained that whales could smell that they could actually see the reaction of whales when they, when the indigenous hunters, the Inupiat, were out in whaling boats, and if they were downwind versus upwind, how the whales would react. Western scientists maintained for a long time that whales had no ability to smell. And there was kind of that difference of opinion for a long time. Recently, studies have been conducted by Western scientists who sort of wanted to figure out really what the truth was that whales could smell. So for literally hundreds of years, the Inupiat people based their positioning of their hunting parties based on the assumption that Western science had said is absolutely inaccurate and recently have been able to confirm that the indigenous people were absolutely right. So that that is just sort of one very small example of the fact that if people who have spent generations observing and sharing that information can share what they know. And if Western science can tailor their experiments and their work to really benefit local people as well as international decision makers, we'll all be better off. So I'm interested to explore a bit more how how that distinction plays into the way that um, the, the, the Arctic region is governed. And you mentioned the Arctic Council earlier, which is a, a regional forum whose members include all of the Arctic states. Um, but the council also involves a number of what are called permanent participants, which are indigenous people's organizations. How do, effective do you think that the council has been at mediating relationships between the states and those permanent participants, which, as you say, have perhaps different ways of understanding the region um, and do, do those ever conflict? Like, how, what does that? Well, perhaps it's best to begin by saying that the Arctic Council is not a decision-making body. It is a a table that is set for the eight Arctic nations and the permanent participants, the indigenous people who are represented by specific organizations of those countries. It is a place where people can share information. There are work. Uh, groups, task forces, and study areas that allow people to kind of bring to the table their expertise and talk about and then work on joint papers, joint positions, and in some instances, recently, joint agreements. So, for example, in the last few years, the Arctic Council has adopted an oil spill response agreement, which is quite useful as we see potential development evolving, and an emergency response 
Agreement, which governs the way in which countries of the Arctic region would help each other if there were some sort of a shipping disaster or whatever. Uh, so recently they have been getting more into agreements, but for most of the years that it has existed since the mid-1990s, it hasn't been a place where really there would be differences of opinion to mediate. It would be more of a place where people share information and work together on projects. So I would have to say it is a, from my viewpoint, very successful at encouraging the ongoing dialogue between the Western scientists, the traditional knowledge, the governments of those eight nations, and the indigenous, the permanent participants. But again, it wouldn't be probably, I, I think it would be an overstatement to say that the Arctic Council has had the opportunity to reach back into the governing bodies of those eight Arctic states to change relationships between the indigenous people and their governments. That tends to be not something that the Arctic Council views as its job. That is really something that takes place at the more provincial level, so to speak, of that particular region. But having said that, once you get to know people and understand how much there is that you can learn from another person that maybe previously you thought you couldn't learn anything from, it does change the atmosphere of your ability to work together in a much more productive way. Hmm. And and while we're on this subject of relationships, as, as you said earlier, the USA is only an Arctic state because of Alaska. As an Alaskan yourself, what is your view on the extent to which Alaska is able to participate in formulating the USA's Arctic policy and in participating in international forums such as the Arctic Council? Well, like any marriage, there are good days and bad days. Um, I, I would have to say that in some instances, the federal government has bent over backwards to really encourage and engage Alaskans in discussions about policy and to try to spend the extra time and money of going out to Alaska and holding meetings, public sessions, at which people were asked for their views and their recommendations and that that gets incorporated. In other instances, um, perhaps because of time, perhaps because of federal laws and regulations and how uh, regulatory decisions need to be made legally, uh, there is less of that opportunity to really engage or at least um, meaningfully accept the recommendations from Alaskans. So I think if you asked Alaskans in general that question, you would get this sort of um, good news, bad news things. In some some cases, there are great examples of that really working well, and in other cases, not so well. Most recently, the federal government has adopted a national Arctic strategy, and that national Arctic strategy, which was adopted in April of this year, uh, had been developed largely internally to federal agencies, um, the national security staff and the White House. Not a lot of outreach effort. But now they are at the next phase, which is developing uh, implementation plans for that National Arctic Strategy. And I would say this summer, there has been a very active engagement process by federal people coming to Alaska, soliciting views, ideas, and an ongoing dialogue about how that implementation would really 
be more of a partnership between the federal government, state government, tribes, native corporations, communities, et cetera. So um, maybe not such a high grade on the strategy itself, but a much higher grade on this implementation phase. Okay. Now I want to take us to the subject of climate adaptation, which is what you've come to to Yale this week uh, largely to discuss. Um, So according to the Environmental Protection Agency, temperatures in Alaska have increased an average of 3.4 degrees Fahrenheit over the past 50 years, with winter warming even greater at 6.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Have you yourself noticed any changes or, or experienced any difference in climate in your time in the state? Yes, and I think it would be impossible to answer that question other than by saying the change has been dramatic. It has been, in some parts of the state, uh, catastrophic. So how does that manifest? It manifests in ways that if you live in Alaska, you can observe by less ice in the winter, uh, ice leaving earlier in the spring and coming later in the fall. It can be witnessed by the thawing permafrost. Permafrost is a permanently frozen ground, often with a thin layer of topsoil on top, but the foundations of buildings and roads in regions where there is permafrost uh, have crumbled, have actually, buildings have come off of their foundations because the permafrost is thawing. In many places, you are seeing this as coastal erosion. So more and more winter storms taking more and more of our coastline away, in some cases 30, 40, 50 feet in a single season. And villages, which are often built right on the coast, have been losing infrastructure as a result of this combination of thawing permafrost and much bigger storm wave activity, which is also because of climate change. Previously, if you have more ice acting almost as a blanket on the ocean, you don't get such high waves and you don't get such powerful winter storms that, again, do a much more, um, have a much more damaging effect in terms of wave activity on the coastline and more erosion. Uh, The way in which trees and shrubs are moving north the way in which species of birds and animals are moving north. Much warmer summers, much milder winters. Uh, Pretty much throughout the state of Alaska, people talk about, wow, that was a really mild winter. Wow, this is a really hot summer. So yes, the observation as well as the science which is being done on how rapidly the change is impacting the ecosystem is quite stunning in Alaska. Wow, that sounds pretty dramatic. Um, what, what do these changes mean for the for the people who live in Alaska? And I guess I'm thinking particularly about these villages you mentioned, where we're seeing such incredible and unprecedented rates of of coastal erosion, like um, Kivalina and Shishmaref. A number of those communities have already made the decision to move their villages because they recognize that there's no way of protecting them from the storms, from the erosion, and from eventually the collapse of their infrastructure. So Shishmaref, Nutak, Kivalina, they are in the process of actually 
moving, finding a different location that is on higher ground or safer and and more likely to be sustainable, and trying to put together the financial packages to be able to move schools or build new schools, etc. So for some of those villages, it feels very now. (laughs) For other villages, it isn't quite as near term, but it is in the lifetime of current Alaskans. So the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers did an analysis and came up with about three dozen communities that are at risk that will either need to be moved or need to be abandoned in this lifetime. So there are those very dramatic examples, but there are also ways in which communities, even though they don't have to move, are feeling this change. In the wintertime, many of the villages that do not have road access, that can only use the rivers or be or people fly into them, and there are a lot of villages in Alaska like that, the river in the wintertime acts as their road. So once it freezes over, that actually becomes the way in which you drive a truck or a snowmobile from one village to another. Well, if you have warming winters, you have less time that you can actually use that iced river road, and it is more unpredictable whether or not it is safe. So people are actually ending up in the river with their truck during a period of time when previously it would have been safe to ride on that ice road. So there are lots of things that you'd have to describe as uncertainties associated with the warming condition of things that previously were quite safe, whether it's winter hunting or winter transportation on ice, uh, no longer that way. Um, It also impacts communities that are dependent upon, for example, having the areas around them not... uh, not having the forest fires at the extreme levels that we've been having forest fires in the middle of Alaska. There have always been forest fires, but with warming conditions, with less rain, with a hotter base climate uh, condition, you find the forest fires much larger area, lasting much longer periods of time, which means there's more smoke in the air. So people in Fairbanks have had long periods of time where you can't go out, you you can't let your children go out and play in the streets because of smoke inhalation, particularly if they have asthma or any other kind of uh, respiratory issues. So uh, there are lots of health consequences associated with climate change that, again, may seem very far away if you're sitting here in New Haven. But if you're living in Alaska, it's a very real impact, and it's almost impossible not to observe it and not to experience it and not to really worry about how much worse is it going to get. Wow, it's it's fascinating to hear such a compelling description of, of how something as global in scale as climate change can translate into these very local impacts on the ground how do you how do you think is the best way to coordinate efforts um to to ameliorate those impacts or to try and deal with those impacts given that they're they're very locally felt but there's this global connection to the climate system and and perhaps the resources at at different scales between local and and national and the state scale are going to vary 
There is no one answer to that question. I think adaptation, particularly as it relates to things like um, infrastructure, buildings, roads, airports, and how you change where you build things and how you build things is always going to be very locally dependent upon conditions. So in the Arctic, obviously, where you have permafrost, you have to think differently as an engineer when you are planning a road or planning a new school construction if you're dealing with permafrost that is thawing more rapidly. So the engineering community in Alaska, actually, they're having these conversations. How do we adapt our engineering design and our construction methodology to accommodate this change and what we what appears to be a trend that means if it looks like this today 20 years from now or 30 years from now certainly within the design life of a major building like a school what is it that we should be anticipating that's very different than if you would have asked us 20 years ago what kind of a school should we be build, building what kind of foundation supports should we use how do we accommodate the kind of change that we are anticipating in a way that doesn't mean that we're going to have buildings collapse. So that's a really different approach than what you might do on the shores of New Jersey or New York or, you know, the East Coast, where you also have adaptation challenges associated with rising sea level, with more storm surging, etc. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, the whole field of adaptation, where there is a lot of discussion and a lot of interest not just by the engineering firms, by uh, public sector construction uh, and interests by governments, will have to be locally based and have to take into consideration as best we can our projections about things like warming regions and rising sea level uh, based on knowledge that is appropriate and scaled to regions. Scaling climate change models is quite a challenging area right now, and a lot of the climate scientists that have been working with models for years are trying to tune up their efforts to this very important point of scale and trying to make it much more regionally based so that the decisions that get made by the public policymakers, by the private sector, by the engineers and construction industry, is more appropriate to the local conditions so that adaptation can be more effective. And just before we conclude this first part of the interview, you, you've been talking about what should happen, what, what the decision makers should be doing. Do, how far do you think we're seeing that already, that, that policymakers are, are taking climate into consideration when making decisions? I think that's, it kind of depends upon where you are. I think there are some countries that are further ahead than our country is in being uh, open and transparent about the extent to which climate change is happening and the extent to which climate change needs to be factored into decisions by both the private and public sector. So I think there are answers that we can sort of learn from other northern regions, we can learn from Europe, we can learn from other places where they are incorporating this information in the decision-making process in a more intentional way. So it, it's, it is happening, but it's not so much because of the kind of um, open and transparent dialogue about how best to use technology and science 
to improve our decision-making process. I mentioned that in Alaska, engineers are talking about this and trying to focus attention on this question because, frankly, lots of money is involved when you're building roads, airports, and schools. So people who are concerned about getting the value out of the investment that they are making, they may not be talking with legislators and governors about this, but they are certainly talking with each other about it so that they can actually utilize the knowledge that does exist about climate change, climate models, projections regarding permafrost thaw, and projections regarding the extent to which coastal erosion really has to be factored into these choices so that we don't waste money. Lots to think about there. Ms. Ulmer, thank you very much. You're welcome.